Hi, I'm James Gardner, host of Your History, Your Story, a podcast for everybody who loves stories about interesting people and events told by those who uncovered them from within their own family trees. This, we hope, will inspire you to discover and celebrate your history and your story. In the summer of 1982, homicide detective Dave Reichert of the King County, Washington Sheriff's Department was assigned to investigate multiple murders. The victims were found in and around the Green River in that county. This, for Dave, began a 20-year hunt for one of the most prolific and elusive serial killers in U.S. history, dubbed the Green River Killer. In this episode, Dave, who became sheriff of King County in 1997 and later served 14 years as a member of the U.S. House of Representatives, will tell us about the roles he played in investigating the murders as the lead investigator, task force member, and sheriff. I'd now like to welcome Dave Riker to our show. Welcome, Dave. Thank you for having me. Happy to be here. Terrific. Dave, I'd like to start off by asking you, where were you born and raised? And can you tell us a little bit about your family and your family roots? Uh, well, I was born in Detroit Lakes, Minnesota, but my parents uh, moved a year later. So I was a year old. My sister had just been born and they decided to pack up and move to Washington State for work. So my dad was looking for a job and ended up working at Pacific Car and Foundry, which is now coincidentally Kenworth Trucking. So he started out working there as a steel worker. And I grew up in a family uh, eventually of uh, seven children and obviously steel worker, blue collar neighborhood, Southeast of Seattle, pretty tough neighborhood. I grew up fighting. It was one of those Friday night, Saturday night at the fights. The cops were at the neighbor's house for family fights. We had domestic violence issues in our own home, which uh, I grew up sort of being the protector of my younger brothers and sisters and uh, also some of the younger children in the neighborhood. Uh, while we lived up in that area, East Renton, it's called uh, Renton Highlands area. I uh, was kidnapped by a group of three mid-20s guys, along with a couple of my friends. We were tied to uh, trees. We had our shirts ripped from our backs. They whipped us with tree branches and took our little jelly and peanut butter sandwiches that we'd brought along on our little adventure and smashed them into the dirt and stuffed them in our face and stuffed them up our noses. And they were just having a, a great time, you know, torturing us. I was able to escape with two of them chasing me hot on my heels. I was able to get away, get home, and we called the cops. But that just sort of gives you a little bit of a picture. I ran away when I was 16 because of the uh, domestic violence at home, lived in a an old car that I bought because I had a part-time job in between playing football, which was my passion. Played basketball, baseball also, but um, I sort of got an understanding of some of the lives that, that some of the girls had led that were runaways that ended up on the street. I didn't end up in that world. I slept in an old junker car on a dead-end road in the Kent Valley and would return home from time to time to check on my brothers and sisters. So it was a tough upbringing. I had to stop my father from committing suicide. He had uh, put a shotgun in his mouth and I had to talk him out of shooting himself. It was just not 
I think we all say, you know, our families, you know, what's a normal family, but it was definitely stressful and not always a happy place. Not to say that there weren't some good times too. My parents tried, but I just think we're overwhelmed financially and that financial stress led to a lot of, uh, a lot of family issues in the house. Yeah, that can often happen. Now you mentioned you were the protector. So you were the oldest of the children. Yep. You felt like you had to, were you protecting your family from other kids in the neighborhood and things like that? Yes. And, and, and also trying to keep them in, out of harm's way during the domestic fights that would break out, you know, I ended up getting in the middle of some of those, which I probably shouldn't have been in the middle of, but you know, you had to, I had to make a stand there at a young age in between my parents and trying to protect my brothers and sisters from that, but also from, yeah, from bullies in the neighborhood. I think that's what led me to be a cop, you know, really. Yeah. And I wanted, I just wanted to help people. That's what really drove me. I wanted to make a difference. I wanted to help people solve problems in their lives and find a better way. That's why I became a cop. I, I just wanted to help. Yeah. You were forced to grow up pretty quickly, weren't you? Yes. Yep. Yeah. yeah. No, no kid should have to be talking their dad out of committing suicide. I mean, that must've been a terrible stress on you. Yeah. I was in my early twenties at the time. I'd just become a police officer. So I was a little bit older then, but still, you know, that sort of stuff was kind of going on in the home. They divorced soon after that experience. I had two brothers follow me into law enforcement. It seemed like almost a natural thing because you want to continue protecting. I just want to sort of go off of that for a second. So as you got older, before you joined law enforcement, you had a military career, didn't you? You were in the military for a while. Yeah, I joined the Air Force. Actually, I went to, uh, I had two years of college and then uh, I got married, played uh, junior college football and junior college basketball in Oregon at Concordia Lutheran University. And then I was married after that, went to school at Concordia in St. Paul, Minnesota, joined the Air Force, did six or eight months active duty. And then right away, as soon as I got back from the active duty, I started taking police tests. I wanted to get into law enforcement. So I wanted to serve in the military and start my police career early. And I was able to get hired by the sheriff's office in Seattle, the King County Sheriff's Office, just as I turned 21 years old. So I took the test when I was 20 and was hired February of 1972. So I was just 21, about four months. Did you find that your military duty, did that help you with getting into law enforcement? No, not, not really. Back then, the tests were very different. The qualifications were different. The tests were reading, writing, arithmetic. They were civil service tests focused on that. No law enforcement questions, no military questions, really, that I can remember. There was a psychological interview, no polygraph tests back then. I wouldn't have had any problem, by the way, just for your listeners and passing the polygraph test because I had no experience with drugs of any kind, still don't, other than medication prescribed by the doctors. But they were looking for young, strong, energetic males back then. Of course, females were not yet in law enforcement. They came in the early part of 1974 to King County, 74, 75. Interesting adjustment, of course, for, for everyone back then. I can remember the 
first female officers showing up and they proved themselves worthy. As you can see today, there are thousands and thousands of female officers across the globe, really. But um, I took the written test, passed. I'm dyslexic, so I had difficulty in school. I had difficulty with their test. <laughs> and because it was reading, writing, arithmetic, and a lot of dyslexic people can't spell, numbers are backwards, etc. So I didn't score very high. I was number 82 out of 110 people hired. I know that, of course, when the sheriff or the command staff probably took a look at that list, I'm sure no one put a finger on my name and said, you know what, I here's a guy that's going to end up you know, being the sheriff someday of this county. <laughs> <laughs> I was happy to get hired. And man, I enjoyed patrol. I was a property crimes detective for a while. I proved my mettle there and was asked to come down and work in a homicide and robbery unit in uh, early 1979. That's where actually in 1982 was assigned when the Green River case started. When you were in law enforcement before the Green River case, which we're going to talk about next, what would you say were some of the most challenging times that you had in law enforcement? In the 70s, there was a holdover that still had the 60s holdover. You know, I smell bacon, pig, near pig, oink, oink, uh, rocks thrown at us, bottles thrown at us. There was still that sort of, uh, you know, the hippie versus the establishment kind of thing going on. Not nearly as intense as in the late 60s, but it was still there. That's the era I grew up anyway. So that was going on. Believe it or not, motorcycle gangs were a big problem in the 70s. Gypsy Jokers, Resurrection, Hell's Angels, just like in today's world of gangs. They did drive-by shootings back then. They used to drive up to, they had clubhouses, and they drive in, kick the door down, shoot people, jump on their choppers and disappear into the night. I also think that you know, one of the big things back then was bar fights. There was uh, that kick-ass kind of attitude in the bars. The pool cues had come out and people were getting smacked over the head and hit with cue balls. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, you know, that you'd wade into Donnybrooks frequently. So I think that was part of the reason why they thought you needed big burly guys to be cops. And, you know, we've evolved into understanding that, no, that's not the uh, answer to <laughs> policing in a, you know, in a, an efficient way. But I was called a shit magnet by most everybody that worked the districts next to me because I just kind of fell into things or they kind of fell into me. I was stabbed, had my throat slit in 1973. So I was 22 years old, about a year and a half on domestic violence case. Oh my gosh. You got, you had your throat slit. What happened? Yeah. Yeah. I responded to a call where a husband had his wife by the throat, his arm around her neck and a butcher knife to her throat standing in front of the living room window. I could see an empty bottle of wine on the coffee table. He was acting intoxicated. He wanted to kill her claiming he'd got a message through his aluminum covered belt that he had held up into the sky. The neighbors had testified they'd seen him outside in the front yard receiving messages through his aluminum-covered belt to kill his wife. But he didn't want to kill her right away because he also received a message that he should kill a cop too. Oh, no. So I crawled in a bedroom window while my partners tried to distract him at the front window. I snuck up behind him, was able to save the wife and throw her out a window. But when I turned around, he was on me with the knife. And so it was a hand-to-hand -hand combat sort of a thing. 
he's got the knife out. I can't get to my gun because the knife is just moving so fast. I'm trying to get the knife. I fell over a coffee table and he jumped on me and straddled me and just started swinging the knife wildly and slipped my throat from the back of my neck uh, all the way to my Adam's apple, four different cuts, about 40 some stitches. The last effort to kill me because he was screaming, I'm going to kill you, I'm going to kill you, was a knife coming straight down at my Adam's apple. Like you see in the movies, I caught his hands, you know, with the knife. I'm holding the knife back. I'm gripping, but the tip of the blade just hit my Adam's apple. And so I have a U-shaped scar on my Adam's apple from where I was moving my head back and forth and trying to push the knife away. And just as that was all going on, my partners had broken the door down and got in and pulled him off me, packed my neck in ice and rushed me to the hospital. That's horrendous. You must've been, I mean, I guess the adrenaline was pumping pretty, pretty strong, but you must've been terrified. You know, I, I don't remember being afraid at all. People have asked me that. And I know it sounds, I don't know, sort of a, you know, like a bravado statement, but I just being honest, I didn't feel any fear. I'm a Christian. I don't want to die, of course, but I just believe that I I was there for a reason and God will take care of me. And I don't remember having any fear after I was stitched up and I was able to go home. I was off work for probably a couple of months. Back then, there was no, you didn't go see a psychologist. You just went back to work. It wasn't a week later. I had another guy. Guy was going nuts with a knife. I showed up. He jumps out of a building, half house, half trailer contraption that he was living in uh, with a butcher knife, I was able to talk him out of, out of stabbing me. So I had another case, domestic call. I mean, I could tell you all kinds of cop stories, but this one in particular kind of shows you how quickly cops have to go from how you control your anger and be professional and use your training. I went to this call, domestic violence call. The husband, I could see him slapping the wife around and thinking it was pretty funny that I couldn't get in the front door. It was locked. She couldn't get to me. I'm standing at the window. I'm yelling, get to the door, open the door. I'm going to kick the door down. And he stops, he comes to the window, opens the window. And I'm thinking, okay, we're going to talk. But he hawks a big loogie, spits right in my eyes and then starts laughing and grabbed her again. So it was before the day of having portable radios. I didn't have one. So I had to run back to the car that was parked on the street. So I ran back to my car to call for backup. As I'm doing that, she's able to get the front door open, screaming. Her husband's in the garage. He has uh, locked himself in there, and he's threatening to kill himself now. So I ran back into the house, went to the garage door that led from the kitchen to the garage door, kicked that door open, found him on a box in the garage, that it slid his wrist and he had the knife in his stomach. So I got behind him and pulled his hands away and pulled the knife away. He tried to stab me. Fortunately, by that time, I think it was 74, 75, I had a bulletproof vest when I first started. We didn't have those. He sliced my uniform shirt three times under my right arm, but my vest protected me and I didn't have any wounds. The neighbor came over hearing all the commotion. This guy was screaming that I was beating him. It was police brutality. 
So his neighbor who had been drinking with him that night decided he was going to help his neighbor out. So he jumped on my back and put me in a chokehold while I'm holding a guy from his back who's got a butcher knife trying to stab me. Oh, I got a guy choking me. <laughs> so if my partner showed up, he pulled a guy off me and we were able to get them both cuffed and took them both to jail. I think of myself, I'd probably be uh, looking to sign up with a head on to look for a different occupation after those experiences. Yeah. Well, I could tell you much more and you know, every cop probably could, yeah. but it's just, you know, it's one of those things people don't understand the life and death nature of that job. And when that call is over, you just go to the next call. It's you don't call the newspaper and say, Hey, guess what I just did, or guess what just happened. You know, it's like putting your eight hours and you go home. And the only people that know about the fact that you just saved a life is you and the family that you dealt with and cops who were there with you. It's just a day's work. I had a, one of the most traumatic and I think one of the most disappointing calls I ever had was I was at the precinct and a young couple came to the precinct around midnight beating on precinct door. And I opened it. The husband was in the passenger seat holding a two-month-old baby. The wife was screaming that the baby wasn't breathing. And so I took the baby, brought the baby into the precinct and uh, held him in my arms and started CPR. And they called Back then, we had no paramedics, you know, nothing like that. It was just, you know, an ambulance would show up. And so I gave CPR to this two-month-old baby in the back of an ambulance for about 15 minutes. And the doctors took him and uh, several minutes later came out and said they weren't able to save him. That I had intubated him and he was getting CPR work, but he was already dead before I started the CPR. And I just remember getting a ride back to the precinct by the ambulance crew. And I told the sergeant, I said, maybe I should go home tonight because that was pretty emotional yeah. call. And he said, we're backed up with calls. We're shorthanded. We had two people calling sick. You got to get back in that car and do your job. Oh, Dave, so it's like put one foot in front of the other after that experience. It must have been really tough. That was one of the hardest things that I, uh, I did. And then, of course, Green River collecting scores and scores and scores of bodies that were little girls and young women in a week after week, sometimes six, seven bodies a week. You learn the value of life very, very quickly. Before we start to talk about the Green River case that you were so actively involved in, right before the Green River case, did you lose a friend who was also in law enforcement with you? Yeah, I lost my best friend, Sam Hicks, Sergeant Sam Hicks. He and I worked to patrol together. He and I were working the homicide unit, and um, he called my home to let me know that, hey, Dave, I got a lead on this homicide suspect, but I wasn't home. So he called another detective, and he went out with him. They actually followed the guy. The guy jumped out of a pickup truck driven by his brother on a large farm in southeast King County. This suspect hid in the woods, ambushed these two detectives, fired through their windshield of their police car, glass shattered into their faces. They both exited. And when Sam looked around the corner of the barn, if he could locate where the shot came from, he was shot in the chest with, a, I think it was a 302 
the rifle round anyway, I forget the caliber, and was immediately killed. His partner, you know, was affected, obviously, by that and ended up retiring. We searched for that guy for three days in the woods, South Cascade Hills, eventually ended up catching him. I was the only homicide detective out there when he was captured. And so I was placed in the backseat of the patrol car with him. I read him his rights and interviewed him on the way to jail. But he complained because he'd been in the woods for three days that he was hungry and thirsty. I actually stopped at a uh, fast food place and bought him something to eat. Also, he complained his cuffs were too tight, so I, I loosened his handcuffs. So I found myself now in the backseat of, of a police car with a guy who just killed my best friend a couple of days before. You showed him mercy. Yeah. It's just another example of, again, you know, police officers. I'm not anyone special. This happens every day to cops. Uh, they do these things and they just go unnoticed and they're not reported. I lost another good friend two years later who he and I were academy buddies and carpooled to the academy. In my patrol days, I was on Pacific Highway South. It was a car accident. It was late at night, midnight, one o'clock in the morning. And I was directing traffic and we didn't realize, but someone had been thrown of the accident from one of the cars. We knew there was drugs or alcohol involved. Uh, the driver was impaired and we found evidence of that in one of the cars. And I didn't know this, but as Mike Rayburn drove up to that scene, his headlights shined on a guy who just happened to jump out of the ditch by the side of the road, had a knife in his hand, was running up behind me to stab me in the back. And Mike tackled him just before he was going to bury the knife in my back. So in 1984, Mike was serving a warrant and he was stabbed to death. Another friend. Right? Yeah. And I guess with serving a warrant, you don't know what you're going to get. Any call, you know, traffic stops or any call. You know, and the frustrating part too is I remember my first traffic stop after I was promoted to sergeant. When they ended the task force, they promoted me. I was assigned to the precinct just south of Seattle. It's a very busy, high crime area. It's where a lot of the prostitution activity that we're going to be talking about occurred. But I pulled this car over that was speeding, had a taillight out. Of course, today they frown upon that kind of a thing. They don't want you to, you know, to make traffic stops anymore because they want to reduce encounters that may lead to some negative outcome. And, and, and I understand that to a certain degree, but my idea was just to walk up and say, hey, you got a taillight out and you need to slow down. I was not known for, you know, for being a ticket writer. I just always wanted to let people, give them the first opportunity to be polite, kind, understanding, recognize they made a mistake and agree to, you know, correct it. But I walked up, he gave me his driver's license, turned out he had a felony warrant out for robbery. I arrested him, but he had a young girl in the back seat, and she was a reported missing uh, runaway, 16-year-old girl runaway in the backseat of this car. Who knows what that guy was going to do? So you can't make those kind of stops anymore. I just, as a cop, know that there's a lot of stuff, a lot of people who are getting hurt, a lot of illegal things happening, a lot of victims that are being, you know, we're creating victims 
by not being allowed to do our jobs to protect people. And uh, just because there are a few bad cops doesn't mean, you know, that we're all all bad cops. The vast majority, 99.9% of us are good people who want to do the right thing, save lives, protect people. Absolutely. Absolutely. I agree. Now, you've talked about this a couple of times already. It's just sort of popped up, but in 1982, you were a homicide detective. How old were you then? I went into homicide and robbery. Uh, I was 28 years old. So in 1982, I was 31. 31. So in 1982, you received a call that heavily impacted your life. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, I happened to be just walking by Sergeant Bollinger's desk, and he had just gotten off the phone with the comm center. One of uh, the patrol cars was at a scene where a dead body had been found. And when the sergeant hung up the phone, he looked up. I was standing right there, and he said, hey, go out and handle this call. There's a body found in that Green River. And that was August 12th, 1982, and that was Debbie Bonner. But prior to that, I was working a case where a 16-year-old who was involved in the human trafficking world was killed. Leanne Wilcox was her name. So I'd already been working that case. In July of 82, the body of Wendy Caulfield, another 16-year-old involved in human trafficking, had been found in the city of Kent jurisdiction. Well, Kent and I were working on Leanne Wilcox and Wendy Caulfield already together. We had discovered that the two of them They were cousins, and we were trying to make connections to a possible suspect. And then on August 12th, the third body was found, the second body in the Green River. On August 15th, Sunday, I was at home, just got back from church. We were going to have a family birthday party for my oldest daughter. And I got a call that two more bodies were found in the river by a river rafter. So a rafter is is uh, floating down the Green River, just south of Seattle. He sees what he thinks are two mannequins up against the riverbank with rocks piled on top of it. But as he gets closer, he realizes those are actually human bodies uh, with rocks on top of them. And he looks up on the riverbank and sees a white male standing on the riverbank. They exchange pleasantries and the white male on the riverbank jumps into a pickup truck, nondescript, and drives off. The rafter then realizes the bodies are real, as I said, and calls the police. Patrol officers show up, and then that's when I get a call. Once the police officers have verified that, yes, these are human bodies, and we need a homicide unit out here, I got a call at home. And as I was processing that scene, I found a third body on the riverbank just above the two that had been placed in the water with rocks on top of them. Those young ladies were Opal Mills, Marsha Chapman, and Cynthia Hines. Oh, gosh. What are you thinking at this point, Dave? I mean, how many bodies do we have now? You've got multiple bodies. And what is going through your mind? What What have you got on your hands here? Yeah, so we have six now. We definitely realized we we had an inkling on the 12th of August that we may have a serial killer. But on Sunday, you know, with three bodies being found and the other two in the river and then Leanne 
Wilcox in January, uh, just south of Seattle in a wooded area, we knew we had a serial killer. We met and on the roadside that day with the command staff and with other detectives and discussed how we were going to proceed forward. We had decided that we would meet on Monday and sit down and come up with a plan to develop an internal task force internally to the sheriff's office. In the meantime, my job was to try and identify these three bodies. Wendy Caulfield was floating and had her pants around her neck as a ligature, partially nude. Uh, Debbie Bonner was nude, had a tattoo, still discernible. Marcia Chapman was on her back in the river with rocks on top of her. Uh, one hand was free. And I just remember the current of the river moving her hand eerily back and forth as if to say, here I am, help me, here I am. I, I just had that thought in my mind when I first saw her. And when I tried to help remove her from the river, her hand came off in mine. Cynthia Hines I was face down. She was also nude. Opal Mills was partially nude, ligature around her neck. So we definitely knew we had a serial killer and we formed a 25 person task force the very next day. How did that proceed from there? What was your role as this continued? And just for the listeners here, DNA science was not in the picture at this point, right? So you had to deal with yeah. process other forms of evidence and science that was available to you back in 1982. Right. So you're looking for, we, we searched that riverbank shoulder to shoulder on our hands and knees from probably a couple of miles on either side of the bodies. Search and rescue people came out and helped us with that. Hundreds of people, of course, in the search. Just to give you an idea of how thorough we were, one of the young search and rescue gals screamed out that she'd found something. And my job as the lead detective was to go and look at each item that was discovered, determine whether or not it was, you know, evidence or, or not. And I went to this young lady and she says, it's in there, it's in there. It's a, it's a fingertip. It's a fingertip. And so as I parted the grass, that's six feet tall, you know, along the river in August with thick underbrush. And they're really going through this with a fine tooth cone. And as I get down and look at it, it's a, a steelhead fishing lure, a little pink lure that's used to catch steelhead. And so it was not any evidentiary value. But again, that's just how detailed. We did find a blouse that belonged to Cynthia Hines about a mile down the river. So as Ridgeway left, he just chucked it out of his truck as he was driving away. But the most important thing that we got from the two bodies uh, along the riverbank was spermatozoa and we froze those samples and they were frozen and preserved and at that time in early 80s we were only considering could we get a blood type from this evidence little did we know later on there would be a science where you could positively identify someone from a bodily fluid sample which now people know so commonly as DNA. We didn't have any idea what kind of evidence would break this case wide open, but we were smart enough and careful enough to preserve over 10,000 items of evidence that we collected 
during those years that we were recovering bodies. Even in the Caulfield case on her ligature, you know, two weeks or so in the river with the river washing over her, a lot of detectives back then would have assumed that there was no evidentiary value to the ligature after having been washed for two weeks in a fast moving river. However, we found microscopic paint spheres on that ligature. Cynthia Hines' blouse that was tossed, the one I described that Ridgeway tossed along the roadside, we kept that. Uh, some people felt it wasn't related to the scene because it was so far away. And I said, no, we're, we're going to take that and keep that blouse. We did. Turns out we found paint spheres, microscopic spheres on that blouse that belonged to Cynthia Hines, identified by her mother as being her daughter's blouse. And that becomes important later on because Gary Ridgway was a truck painter for Kenworth Trucking. Years later, we find a body, the body of Debbie Estes, who had been missing for six years. So she'd been buried for six years. The blouse that she wore had decomposed to the point of as we process that scene, the blouse would just crumble uh, between your fingertips. But the scientists were able to get microscopic paint spheres from these decomposing fibers. And all of those microscopic paint spheres, so this has been buried for six years and they were still able to get that evidence. That's the evolution of technology that detectives have available today. The paint spheres were not developed as evidence until after the DNA identified Ridgeway because the science around identifying paint had also progressed. So we saw three more cases with, you know, being very careful and thorough in collecting those items and preserving those items for scientific examination. Well, that's so important to think that what you were doing then and not knowing really how science is going to progress, really, you didn't know exactly how it was going to progress, but having no. the forethought to preserve the evidence for any future, you know, scientific discoveries to help you solve crimes. Yeah, I think we were just hoping for any break at all. And, and then the thing that drove us is to be very exact, very thorough, very precise, very detailed in collecting anything that could be potentially be used as evidence if we were able to identify a suspect. So remember the complications of this case were 10,000 items of evidence, 10,000, 40,000 tip sheets, no computers. We were doing all this on hard copy by hand and documenting on three by five note cards on a Rolodex file. In 1986, we got our first computer. It's called a fax computer. It took up the size of a normal classroom. And we had volunteers come in, enter data into the computers for weeks, months to get all of our hard copy data into the computer. The computer was not able to correlate any information at all. Its only benefit to us was that if we asked it a question, it could provide us a list provide us the information that we had put in it, but it couldn't compare it to any other information that we had entered into it. So if uh, we had a list of all pickup trucks registered to people in Washington state, because pickup trucks seemed to be 
the focal point vehicle that was described as a suspect vehicle at some of the missing scenes, and especially at the Green River site by the river rafter. We had a list of all people who had steelhead fishing license because Green River is a steelhead river. And those people would be frequenting the river, know the river, know the area. Uh, We had a list of everyone who had been arrested for patronizing a prostitute. We had a list of everyone who had been arrested for assaulting any female. And so we would ask the computer, print out the list of pickup trucks, print out the list of fishing licenses, print out the, the list of people who assaulted women. And you would get a huge printout a sheet that was probably 18 inches wide with perforations on the side. Your older listeners might be able to identify with with that vision from the old school, right? Yeah. We used to unfold those and lay them out the length of the hallway in the abandoned junior high school that was now our office. We'd line those lists up three at a time, assign two detectives to the lists, and then we would call out names, phone numbers, addresses, license plate numbers, whatever information we could. And then we would check each list by hand with a highlighter. If we found a name or an address or a phone number or a license plate on more than one list, they became a higher priority suspect. Dave, over what period of time are we talking about that the, you know, you're finding these bodies? You, I guess you did have a couple suspects or at least one suspect uh, prior to Gary Ridgway. Can you tell us about that a little bit? Well, we had lots of suspects. We had a suspect team. And as I say, we prioritized our suspects, A, B, and C. Uh, We'd work all the A's and the A's would continue to come in, but we also worked some B's and we would end up working some C's if they they would get bumped up to a B priority. But uh, we were always, I mean, we had, like I say, we had to have a team with 40,000 tip sheets. You had to have a team of people working on many suspects at one time. The media was really misinformed because when we focused on one guy, of course, it hit the news media right away. One of those guys was Melvin Foster. Melvin Foster was was a character. He knew the area. He was a cab driver. He admitted to knowing five of the victims. He admitted to having them in his car. We got enough to do a search warrant on his car in his house. We found nude photographs of 16-year-old girls under the trunk liner of his trunk in his car. He lied to us at first and then came back, said he didn't know the victims, then he did know the victims. Yes, they were in his car. He claimed to be a prison psychologist and could profile. I mean, this was just a very interesting person. His first wife had died under very suspicious circumstances in the early 70s. They could never prove she was murdered, but there was suspicion around him. So there's so many things to point to him as a potential suspect, and we have probable cause to search, as I said. So the news media, we would search a place that didn't go anywhere. We would say that we were narrowly focused, but they didn't have any idea or clue as to how many other suspect tip sheets we were working at the same time. It never rose to the level of having probable cause to search. Ridgeway was one of those two that came to our attention in 1987 for a variety of reasons. We searched his home. We searched his locker. We got his coveralls. We found paint on his coveralls. This is later. We also took a swab from him. We collected his saliva 
and put it in a test tube. But still in 87, we're thinking blood type. So we tried to get a blood type from the saliva. Uh, he was a non-secretor, so that his blood type could not be determined. So therefore, we didn't try to match it with the spermatozoa that was found earlier. But we searched his house, his locker, and his cars and found nothing. So we couldn't arrest him in 87. We had to have evidence, right? So that didn't come until much later. But in the meanwhile, we're working many, many suspects. We are identifying body after body, collecting body after body. As I said, sometimes six, seven bodies a week. Our latest, I mean, I I would come home (sighs) smelling of decomposing human flesh to the point where I'd have to leave my clothes in the garage and throw them away. I think if you talk to any of the detectives that worked this case, that the memories of uncovering a 16-year-old girl in a grave is one you never forget, and the smell you never forget. Or you just find a, a skull and no other remains with her. But the things that we did, we collected birds' nests uh, because we thought birds, of course, would take fibers and hair from the victims as they decomposed into the ground. And so we did that. We collected animal feces if, um, you know, it hadn't been too long to see if there was anything that was not digested, like jewelry or buttons that could be identified to help us identify the victim. I found a petrified finger at one of the crime scenes just by following a small burrowing animal trail. Uh, That petrified finger led to the identification of that particular victim. I mean, that's how, again, hands and knees, pulling every blade of grass, cutting down trees, bushes, sifting for hours, long, tedious process, never giving up. Those detectives that worked the case were so dedicated and committed, but again, they were criticized every step of the way because it wasn't being solved quickly enough. So consider people say, well, why did it take so long? I even had a guy a few months ago send an email, somehow got my email address and threatened to kill me and my family because I was inept and uh, allowed a lot of girls to be killed that should have been killed. He's going to be charged with the crime, I hope. That's awful. That, you know, Dave, I'm thinking of you, you and your fellow law enforcement people going through the painstaking process, gathering evidence, but at the same time, and working, I'm sure, many, many hours with far less technology at your fingertips than we do today, but also that you're not exempt from the emotional toll that it must've been taking on you and coming home to your family. What, what was that emotional toll like on you and your family? Well, it wasn't anything like the emotional toll of the families who lost their daughter. Absolutely. Uh, Yeah. So, I mean, we always recognize that, yeah, we were going through some of our own emotional struggles, but our kids were still with us. Our daughters were with us. But the families who lost their loved ones, that, that's a pain that you can never be free from. And it's a hurt that you can never heal. Life goes on for them, but it's, it's a painful life with the loss of their, their little girl. For us, it was, I, I can only speak for myself on this one, I guess. I saw a lot of this in some of the other detectives. 
when I came home, I was here physically, but I wasn't here mentally or emotionally because I was always thinking about the case. I went on vacation once. I didn't want to go. Went on vacation to Las Vegas with my wife and family. And while I was gone, gone two days, they found another body. I hopped right back on a plane and came up here because I didn't want to miss anything. I wanted to know everything. I wanted people to call me. I wanted to be at every crime scene. And I wanted to I interview every person. And I, uh, I knew we were going to solve this case. I never had a doubt it would be solved. I didn't obviously know when. I didn't know who it would be. But I knew, I always knew we would solve it. Just like I knew I would survive those things that we talked about earlier. I never had a doubt or a fear that I wouldn't. And uh, I never had a doubt that we would solve this case. I always knew we would. And it took a lot longer than I would have liked. But consider the difficulty. You have little girls, and that's what I'm going to call them, 16-year-old, 15-year-olds, and, and young women, uh, some as, as old as 35 maybe, who ran away from home, domestic violence, emotional, physical, sexual abuse, whatever it might be, and they leave. They get sucked into this life. Back then, it was pimps on the street would scoop them up, take them under their wings, and tell them that they would be loved. And they were happy to be a part of something. Eventually, they got them hooked on drugs and alcohol and got them to sell their bodies. And they're being given new clothes and jewelry and alcohol and drugs. And uh, they can do whatever they want. There are no rules. So try to get somebody out of that world once they're in it is almost impossible. Not impossible, but it's very, very difficult. We tried. We became friends with a lot of the girls that were working out there, trying to get them reconnected to their families. We had to gain their trust. Even the pimps finally trusted us and started giving us information. Uh, it takes a while to build that trust on the street uh, to catch this guy. But these girls would change their names, change their appearance, go by street names. If one was named Star, there was five more. Which one was the star that you were looking for? And uh, the pimps all changed their names, different birth dates. They'd be arrested here under James Smith in Seattle. They're Bob Jones, different birthday. License plate numbers have changed. The cars changed. They traded the car in. They sold the car. They bought another car. Um, they've shaved their head. They've, they've, uh, they got an Afro. They've, you know, they've grown a mustache or a beard or, I mean, it's just, it goes on and several names. Some of the people we were dealing with had five, eight, 10 different names and birth dates. So young lady disappears. Here's what Ridgeway had to do. Drive up to the street corner, roll down the window, make a deal within seconds. Girl gets in the car. He drives off into the night. She may or may not have been reported missing as she was out on the street, but we may find her body weeks later, months later, or years later. Job then is to go back, first of all, find out who she is. If she's decomposed to the point of just a bone, how do you identify her? Today, you can use DNA. Back then, one of the ways we had some medical records, one of the was a fingerprint that I talked about. The other was a broken kneecap. And we happened to have medical records on one of the victims who had a broken kneecap. We found the patella, the, the kneecap, at a crime scene with some other bones that could not be used for identification. But that kneecap had a crack. 
in it and we matched it with the x-ray and that's how we identified her. So our first step is to identify those victims uh, who are most often just totally decomposed. The next step is to find out who their acquaintances are, their friends, their relations, and who do they hang out with on the street. So you find those people, you talk to the families, they say, yeah, she ran away five months ago. She was hanging out with Lulu. Okay, then we got to identify who's Lulu. Well, that's all I knew her by was was Lulu. She was a white girl. Uh, She had frizzed out hair. And we think she was about 17 years old. So now you're looking for somebody named Lulu. Who knew? Pick a name, Deborah Bonner. You find out that maybe you can get to, because what you're trying to do now is to find out where was she last seen. And where she was last seen is where you're going to find some people who still may be hanging out at that same corner, may have seen her get into a car, a truck, may have seen somebody abduct her, may have heard her scream. But people come and go in that world. And they traveled from Seattle to Anchorage to down to, to L.A., over up to Vegas, uh, San Diego, San Francisco, back up to Seattle, over to Reno. They had a little circuit that they were doing. So it wasn't like they all stayed right in Seattle. Most of them did, but not all of them did. So that's the difficulty. And you had a stranger killing them, right? So it's nobody they knew. Like I say, he drives up. He's an unknown drives off in the night and disappears. And all you really get is, yeah, she used to stand on this corner. She got in a pickup truck. I think it was blue. Then the next time, yeah, she got in this truck. I think it was green. I think it had a canopy. I think it was a Chevy. I think it was a Ford. I think it was a Buick. I think it was a whatever. And, and you end up with getting lists of every registered pickup truck in the entire state of Washington. <laughs> wow. So Dave, were you, you were part of a team that was on this investigation and did that team grow in size and then start to taper off in size? Yeah. So it, you know, started out with 25 detectives. I was the lead detective because the first bodies were assigned to me. We went through 1982, pretty much focused on Melvin Foster and some other priority suspects. Foster fell through we weren't finding any more bodies, and they decided to cut back the internal task force. I was put in a room by myself, which happens to have been called the Bundy Room, which was the same room that Bob Keppel investigated Ted Bundy cases from. So Bob was up there by himself with the Bundy cases, and I ended up in the Bundy Room by myself with six murder cases. At the end of 1982, I was left alone with this case. And then by uh, about August of 83, September of 83, I said, I I need more help. I was able to get five more detectives. By the end of 1983, we had a new sheriff. And in January, he started to put together what we called the Enhanced Task Force. And that started on January 16th. I was still the the lead investigator because I'd been to every, every scene I knew. Uh, I had the most knowledge really about the cases and at that point. And the enhanced task force took in about 75 detectives from a variety of agencies around the Puget Sound area. Eventually, in 1986, the FBI, we had so much pressure that the sheriff relented and invited the FBI into the case. They said they would, they wanted to control it, take the case, and the sheriff said no. 
you can be a part of it, but you're not going to control this. King County is going to solve this case. So the FBI said, well, we'll do this, but we have to have our own supervisor because our guys are not going to be reporting to a police sergeant. So they brought in their supervisor. They have developed a case right away on a guy by the name of McLean. It fell through, and soon after it fell through, the media was certain that they had the guy. The FBI was sure they had the guy, and it turned out not to be the guy. And shortly after that, the FBI pulled out. I think they were there a total of six to eight months, and they were gone. They saw it as a loser. It wasn't going to be solved. By 1990, we were still finding bodies, but not nearly as many. By 86, 87, not finding many more. The case is being wound down. It's costing $2 million a year. The county council, the county executive, all upset that it wasn't being solved and they're spending a lot of money. In my opinion, what does a life cost? What is a life of a little girl worth? You keep on spending the money till you catch the guy. Well, by 1990, there were three of us left, me, Tom Jensen, and Jim Doyan. And they closed it down in March of 1990. Tom and Jim went to the major crimes unit, which was the homicide and robbery, but it's evolved now into major crimes. Tom was going to be the, the guy that managed the case via the computer. All the information still coming in. We were still getting tip sheets. Jim and Tom both worked other cases at the same time. I was fortunate to have been promoted. I went to patrol and I worked in the area where all the prostitutes were, most of the prostitutes were missing from. I spent a lot of my time driving from crime scene to crime scene, hoping to catch the guy because we were told he'd come back to the dead bodies, which we know Ridgeway did, which we know Bundy did also. And so I was in a perfect spot, I thought, to catch him in the act. Working graveyard shift would have been a good time for him to show up at um, Years uh, went by, I was promoted, still getting tips from people. Of course, they saw me as the face of the case. Tom and Jensen and Bob, uh, Jim Doyne and I are still, you know, talking about the case, still engaged in the case. I was promoted to a lieutenant. I ended up as the SWAT commander. I was promoted to captain and then a year later to major. Ten months later, I was the sheriff. Uh, I was a appointed sheriff, and then became the first elected sheriff. I had to run for election in 97 and won and started my first elected term in January of 98. But I immediately opened in 97, I reopened the case, assigned five detectives to the case to review evidence. I had a secret locked room with a combo that, you know, only those five people who are on that team knew nobody knew why those five people were in that room but they were going through all of the evidence i called for a meeting at precinct three in maple valley i got a hold of as many past green river detectives as i could from all the different departments we had a meeting and i said where do you guys think we ought to start because we got to reopen this case and they all said we've got to review this evidence so that's how we started all that evidence that that you've been collecting years before, but I did want to back up just a drop in your book, Chasing the Devil, a 20 year quest to capture the Green River Killer. You had mentioned that you interviewed Ted Bundy, the pretty much notorious serial killer 
who a lot was known about this guy was national news, but that he had offered to provide some sort of assistance in identifying perhaps the Green River killer. Could you tell us about why you interviewed him and what was that experience like? Yeah, he, Bob Keppel was, uh, as I said, he and I were homicide partners. I worked with him in the King County Sheriff's Office when he worked there. He left the Sheriff's Office just a couple of months before Green River started and went to work as an investigator with the Washington State Attorney General's Office. And um, he got a letter from Ted Bundy. Of course, Ted Bundy knew Bob Keppel as the investigator of his cases here in Washington State. And he said, uh, you know what, I'd like to meet with you. I think I can offer you some insight into the mind of a serial killer, into the mind of the river man, as Bundy called him. And so Bob wrote him back, and then he wrote a letter back addressed to Bob and and myself, and again said, uh, I think I can help you. Don't ask me why, but I have some expertise in this area. So Bob and I flew to Florida, and we interviewed Ted Bundy in Stark Prison for a little over two days. When I first met him, that's what really struck me. We walked into the room, everybody talked about, you know, all these years we've heard about Ted Bundy, how handsome and what a charismatic uh, personality he was. And I'm looking at this guy and I'm going, man, I don't, I don't see any of that in this jerk. He was a small man. He was mousy to me, like a rat, you know? And Ridgeway was, to me, my first thought was he was, a, he was just a sewer rat, evil. When Bundy stuck his hand out to shake my hand, I first hesitated. I thought, do I really want to give him that respect? But then, you know, as a cop, your job is to sort of try to get into their good graces. You know, you're no different than anybody else. I'm here to sit and talk with you. I respect you enough to shake your hands, which I didn't, but I did it because it was my job. So I shook his hand and I like had a flash, uh, you know, like you'd watch a movie and you'd see this, you know, that this handshake take place. And then the, the movie would have a vision of what the detective saw. It was evil. It was pure evil. And my thought was how many lives has this guy, as this hand, this hand right here that I'm shaking had snuffed out. How many young women did he kill with that hand? That's the thing that I remember thinking when I first met him. And he sat down and they brought him a tray full of food and he just slopped his potatoes and uh, he had some meatloaf and beans, I think, on there. And he mushed them all up together, never ate a thing. You could see his old carotid artery just pounding away. He was nervous at first, but acted confident. He talked in the third person. The river man will do this. He'll go back to the crime scenes. He'll have sex with the bodies. Probably find him going to the porno theaters, which Ridgeway, we discovered, never did, but Bundy did. So we had two missions when we went down there. One, maybe he can give us some insight, much better, of course, than an FBI profiler could because they've never been a serial killer, but Bundy had. So maybe he could give us some insight. That was number one. Number two, we felt... Well, you never know. There is a possibility he may all of a sudden just decide to open up and say, okay, you know what? I killed so-and-so in in Washington State. I killed so-and-so in Colorado and Utah and Florida. But I remember one of the last questions I asked him was, do you ever see 
because I asked it in the third person too. You ever see Ted Bundy ever talking about what happened in Washington State? And he goes, man, you know what? There may be a day sometime when Ted Bundy might talk about what happened in Washington State, but today's not that day. <laughs> Boy, did you feel that he helped at all with the case? I think it really, for Bob and I, we gained some insight just into how these guys think and how, number one, there's no remorse for any loss of life, for taking a life. There's no respect for human life whatsoever. There's an arrogance there. There is a disconnect with you know with society, obviously, and that uh, they are, have a very high opinion of himself. The reason he wanted us to come down there is he wanted to know more about Ridgeway because Ridgeway's body count was going to be higher than his. That's absolutely horrendous and evil. It is hard to comprehend that kind of evil. And you had to sort of be in the presence of that. And I can't help but think about you as a young man and even as a kid with those protector instincts. And here you're feeling that you got to do everything and anything you can to protect those girls who are still out there that who could become victims, including having to actually shake hands with somebody like Bundy with the hopes that he might perhaps help you in some way solve the case. Yeah. When I talked to Ridgeway, it was the same. You're just looking into a blank, dark hole uh, filled with evil. Mm. And, you know, my book that I wrote called Chasing the Devil. I mean, that's, uh, we were chasing the devil and we caught the devil, but not before the devil could do some of his dirty work. Terrible. Yeah. And by the way, I don't make any money off of the book. It all goes to charity. It helps drug addicted babies. So if anybody wants to read Chasing the Devil, it goes to a good cause. I have read it and it is riveting. It's emotional to listen to it but I clearly saw your heart and the role your faith played in helping you move through it, but also the challenges that you had, not letting it destroy you at home or professionally. And yeah. I, really, I really commend you on being able to move one foot in front of the other during such a terrible time while you were investigating the case. But I did want to go back now to, it's now the late nineties. You've now become the sheriff of King County. And you've got some new science that's on the horizon there. So what happened and how did you eventually bring Gary Ridgway to justice? So in 1999, there were two labs that were doing uh, DNA science work. We called them and they said, well, the only way we could really tell if we can examine this and get a result would be to look at the samples in person. So we uh, packed them in ice, sent them back with a detective. And once the lab looked at it, they said, the samples are too minute and too fragile for the science right now. We can't really do anything with those, right? We don't want to destroy your evidence, but the science will evolve. So yeah, we were told to be patient because they couldn't do the examination yet because the samples were too degraded and too minute. So we waited. And then in March of 2001, we got a call from the Washington State Lab, and they told us, bring your samples up, we can examine them. So 
That was in March. And in September, the results came back to Tom Jensen, who submitted those samples. Again, he's still in the major crimes unit. Tom is like the guru of the case because he's constantly looking at the details of it and looking at comparisons. Now, by now, we have computers, of course, that compare all the information, correlate the information when we ask a question. Tom submits the evidence in March. He gets the results back. He asks for a meeting in my office with Chief A. Brooks, and they come to my office Tom has got three pieces of paper that he unfolds on my desk. The first one has a victim's name at the top, and it's a crude DNA chart. He said, hey, we got a, a DNA profile off one of the victims. And I said, man, that's awesome. Then he pulls out another sheet of paper, and it's a second profile from the second spermatozoa sample that we had taken back in 1982. And that was also a crudely drawn chart by Tom. And they matched. So we know the same person was responsible for leaving those samples behind on two different victims. And then the third piece he lays down, a piece of paper, says Green River Killer at the top and a crude graph of a DNA profile. And it matched the profile of the two victims. I looked at Tom and I said, Tom, are you trying to tell me that we solved the case? We caught the guy? And Tom said, look in this envelope. And he handed me this envelope. And I kind of looked at him sort of quizzical. (laughs) And I opened the envelope. I started to open it. And I said, you know what? I don't even need to open this envelope. It's Gary Ridgway. And he goes, how'd you know that? I said, I just know it is. And I opened the envelope. And it's the mugshot of Gary Ridgway from early 1982, before we started finding bodies, when he was arrested by our sheriff's office for patronizing a prostitute. Oh, you must have been, I feel emotional from that. You must have been bowled over. How did you feel at that moment? Even though you kind of suspected that was going to be the answer, what were you feeling? Yeah, I I mean, uh, we were all teary-eyed and emotional. Uh, How could you not be after all this time, right? There was so much hope right then. I saw just all this hope for the victims' families to get the answers that they were looking for. And all the detectives who'd spent all of those years working on the case, those thoughts were flooding through my mind. And But once that sort of, you know, it was a joyous emotion, I guess. Once that had sort of subsided, I started thinking, okay, we can't celebrate now. No. <laughs> There's a lot of work to do. So I called a team together and we immediately put Ridgeway under surveillance. I wanted to watch him for a while. We watched him for a couple of months and uh, he hit on one of our decoys. We had a female officer out there posing as a prostitute and he hit on her. We decided to arrest him. And so we came up with our our plan to arrest him was to get him up as he was leaving work. And uh, we had cops all around the place. We had undercover cops inside Kenworth trucking, keeping an eye on him all day to make sure we didn't lose track of him. At the end of the shift, he came out to go to his car. We had a a couple of cops in an SUV drive up, stop in front of him, identified himself as a King County Sheriff's detective, asked him if he was Gary Ridgeway. He said yes. 
Randy said, you're under, under arrest for the murder of four women. And uh, he said, okay, that was it. He handed him his lunch bucket. They handcuffed him and they put him in the back seat, brought him to the Regional Criminal Justice Center in Kent, which is just south of Seattle. What struck me, though, about that is that, you know, of course, I would have liked to have been at the arrest. Sure. <laughs> but I was the sheriff. Yeah. So, and King County Sheriff's Office is the 12th largest sheriff's office in the nation. So, you know, the sheriff doesn't go out and do that kind of thing. You're the, you're the head of the organization. So I was at the command post and I just remember hearing one in custody and 10-4 en route to the jail. And those are comments that you hear after every arrest. So it seemed so um, routine to me, you know, yeah. you know, one in custody for 10-4 on the way to the jail. I, I mean, I don't I couldn't tell you how many times I said that, but in this one time, it really struck me because we're not just bringing, you know, a shoplifter in, we're bringing in the most prolific serial killer in the history of this country. And we have him. There was quite the cheer that went up and uh, we were able to keep that a secret that we had him under surveillance, uh, that he was the guy. We brought him to the jail. We interviewed him till the point where he asked for a lawyer. The lawyer talked to him for probably an hour or so. And we knocked on the door. As he walked, as Ridgeway walked past me, I couldn't help myself but to walk and step in front of him and say, gotcha, asshole. And I know it seems enough, you know, like a simple statement again, but to me it was years of pent up frustration and, you know, just a relief now, I guess, that we're on our way, but still there's no rest. You know, now we have to build the case. The first things the attorneys did, he had a team of eight, was to say, well, sure, that's his uh, spermatozoa. We admit that he used prostitutes. Those two just happened to be two that were killed by somebody else. After he had sex with them, somebody else came along and killed him. Until we got the pain evidence, then there was a little problem. How do you explain that three of these victims have microscopic paint spears that match the paint from his coveralls, that match the paint from the pickup, from the semi-trucks that he was painting? How do you explain that? They couldn't. And so Ridway knew we had him and he went to his lawyers and said, you know, I don't want to be put to death. So I'll talk to him and I'll give him whatever I can give him. So he agreed to tell us about CSET 65 cases. He ended up, after all said and done, pleading guilty to 49. We closed 51 uh, cases, two of them we just didn't have enough to charge him with, but we know he did it. We believe he killed somewhere between 60 and 70. We interrogated him for six months in an undisclosed location, which I, I'm still shocked to this day that we were able to keep this location a secret from that nobody knew where this place was. I was there every day for six months. My executive assistant had to find, whenever she got a phone call, somebody <laughs> wanting to talk to me, we had to find ways around to not telling them where I was, getting a hold of me, having me meet with them, talk with them. Well, you know, other business was still being conducted by the sheriff's office. 
But I was not going to miss a day of that interview. And when we interviewed him, we had cameras set up. His attorneys were in the room. We had other rooms with monitors. I had been to every one of the crime scenes. So I was able to, on the computers, type in questions into the detectives that were interviewing other detectives, had questions. They were able to send those questions in via emails to the interviewing detectives. We had a team of four. And then eventually, once we were all done focusing on all the cases, we decided to throw them a, a little bit of a loop. And I needed my need to get my pound of flesh out of him too. So for about two and a half days, uh, I went in there all dressed up in my sheriffy gold bling and uh, tried to intimidate the hell out of him to see if I could get any more information out of him. I was unsuccessful, but I got some satisfaction to, of turning up the heat on that guy uh, and making him squirm big time. And then he pled guilty. He is serving 49 consecutive life terms. So thank the Lord he's not going to see the light of day ever again. He's not getting out of prison. Dangerous, dangerous person. Thank you for the role you played in putting him behind bars, because who knows how many more victims he may have started up again at any time, you know, and uh, for you and your team of, of law enforcement who stuck with it and went through the emotional pain that you would have had personally from dealing with it. But I think one of the things I really wanted to mention again is your concern for the families, because these were people's daughters and sisters, and you, you never lost your compassion for the families and those victims. No, and I think every detective felt that way. If there were detectives that came into the task force that were there a few months and saw at least from their point of view, it was not going to be solved, so they left. They didn't see any hope. But we had a psychologist come in and talk to all of us at one point because somebody had decided, you know, we've been through some pretty intense situations <laughs> collecting these bodies. Maybe we needed to have a joint session to talk about it. Of course, cops, you know, try to be tough. And so we all pretty much sat there with our arms crossed going, this is stupid. But one of the things I got out of it was he passed around, there was about 70 or so of us in this meeting, asked us a lot of questions about how we were feeling and what we thought. And he passed around a, a survey on a scale of 0% to 100% markdown percentage that you think the chances are that, that you're going to solve this case. Each one of us got a sheet. I marked down what I marked down and others marked down what they marked down. He got it, tallied it up. And there were a lot in the 40% range that, you know, thought it was going to be solved. Some were 5%. A lot of them were up in the 80%. And I'm looking at this thing and there's only one marked 100%. And I know that was me because I marked 100%. I was trying to think to myself, how in the hell can we be on this team and not believe that you're going to solve this case. If you're 5% or 10%, it's like being on a football team. If I'm going on to play another team and I don't think I have a chance in hell to win, why am I even on the team? So I tried to get people motivated to think there's just no chance that we're not going to solve this case. And I think that a lot of people finally got there and we did it. So you know, we became friends with the families. I was a pallbearer at uh, one of the funerals for uh, for Debbie uh, Estes. 
we were invited to their homes. They brought us cookies and cakes. And yeah. I mean, we were, we were their conduit to some, I don't know, you can't call it, There's no closure uh, as not really a peace of mind, but just we were the conduit to answers to questions that they had. First, you know, was my daughter murdered? Two, uh, if she was, who murdered her? And three, why? Yeah. Well, you know, we were able to answer the first two questions for a lot of those families. Gary Ridgway killed them. When we asked him why, he said, because he could. Oh boy, how about a very sick individual? Well, I, a lot of people don't know. He took his son with him on one of the, on one of the Giselle Lavorne. I picked her up. He was in the truck. They parked. Gary walked into the woods with Giselle, killed her, had sex with her, left her, and um, buried her, and got back in the truck. And his little boy said, what happened to the girl that was with you? And he said, well, she decided to walk home. He had just killed her. And then he drove home. He left one morning, picked up a girl on the way to work, had sex with her, killed her, left her in the back of his truck with a canopy on it, drove to work, parked it in the parking lot, went in, worked the first four-hour shift, came out at lunchtime, drove to a secluded dead-end street, had sex with the dead body in the back of the truck, went back to work, finished out the day, drove home, on his way home, buried her, and went home, had dinner, and watched TV. Horrific. That's pure evil. He's more, more guilty about stealing a hubcap than taking someone's life. I tell you, that's, uh, I'm so thankful that you and the team got that person off the streets. And, you know, I just thankful for the persistence. And again, the, the important thing is you believe that the case was going to get solved. And that was so important because without that hope, you know, maybe the effort would have faded and, you know, you just have to have hope if you're going to try to accomplish anything, even if it's a monumental task and dealing with all the evidence that you had to deal with, uh, with the lack of tools at your side until, of course, much later. But I want to ask you this, Dave, tell me about your life after the Green River and after you left law enforcement, you went to Congress. Can you tell us a little bit about that? And what were some of your objectives uh, as a congressman from Washington State? Yeah, I, uh, you know, it's, it's amazing what people will say, you know, when you start to, you're thrown into this stuff, you know, it's not like I plan to be the detective, you know, in a, in a serial murder case. And I, I didn't plan to be the sheriff. I was recruited and it happened around the time that I was promoted to major that the community decided to go for a an elected sheriff versus an appointed, the appointed sheriff leaves. I get recruited to be the appointed sheriff. And when people ask me, I said, you got to be joking. But people claim that I used Green River to become the sheriff, that I used Green River to become a member of Congress. And I would have really had to have a lot of control over my life and have a one hell of a plan, a political plan to end up trying to make this all happen and become a member of Congress. It's just crazy what some people come up with these conspiracy ideas that I did these things for political 
cane. I did them because they were in front of me. They were placed on my table of things to do. All I did was do my job. And then what comes after that comes after that. And then you make decisions on whether or not you want to move forward with those things. So my name after WT, I had WTO in, in all the middle of this. I was the sheriff in Seattle during WTO. Your listeners can Google WTO and read about the things that I did there. I got a lot of notoriety on just being a cop and instead of just the sheriff. You know, I was just being a cop in that uh, instance. And there were other things that raised my name identification. And so Someone called me and said, would you consider, we want you to consider running for Congress. So I did. And I had no clue what I was doing in 2004 (laughs) when I ran. Just being honest, I'm a kid that's, uh, you know, as I said, I'm oldest of seven. I grew up in a poor household. I ran away from home. Uh, It was dysfunctional family. To end up where I've ended up is an absolute miracle nothing that I planned, nothing that I tried to strive for. It just happened to me. My life happened to me is is sort of how I describe it. Just like on patrol, I was kind of like the, the, uh, the character in that Linus cartoon pig pen with the dust cloud around him. And so I went through that process. I didn't debate in high school. I wasn't on the debate team in college. But I ended up in the middle of these debates on political issues that were far beyond law enforcement, and I found I could do it. And I won by 51% my first campaign and then went on to win six times after that. I've spent 14 years in Congress. What I decided to focus on, and it's not because I, I was talking to a guy the other night. He's got all these qualifications. I was concerned I wasn't smart enough. You know, I don't have the pedigree that a lot of people have. I, I didn't go to an Ivy League school. I finished two years of a junior college, you know, liberal arts school. I've always said I'm not the smartest guy in the world, but I'm one of the few thinkers. It doesn't mean that my thinking is correct. It just means that I think about a problem and try to figure and try to figure out, a, you know, the solution to it and listen to others and their solutions and then choose the best combination of what I've heard and what I, I feel that I know is the right thing to do. That's how I operated in the sheriff's office. That's how I operated in Congress. It befuddled a lot of members because when I said I was going to do something, I did it. And normally in Congress, you say you're going to do something and then you get stabbed in the back and somebody screws you over. But I had a reputation for just being that cop attitude is like, if you, you want to work with me, this is what I think, this is what I'm going to do, and this is when I'll do it. If you want to do it with me, then we'll do it. Otherwise, it, it ain't happening. And um, I focused on foster care. I focused on human trafficking. I focused on, uh, I was the chairman of the trade subcommittee on ways and means. And for me, the trade issue tied into families because it tied into jobs. And I, and again, going back to my family and the financial economic stress that was present. To me, if people have access to a good education, get a good job, they have a much better chance at having a stable family life, reduces the chances of people running away from home, getting involved in the things that I saw and things that running away from home, like in my case, and in the case of the young girls in the Green River 
case. So I was passionate about trade for those reasons, but I always operated the sheriff's office on these four core values, leadership, integrity, service, and teamwork. I incorporated those same core values into my congressional office. I'll just give you a quick L-I-S-T, leadership, integrity, service, and teamwork. That spells the word list. And that's so cops could remember it. It was easier that way. I thought about some core values that spelled the word donut, but I uh, couldn't come up with the right <laughs> acronym. So that didn't work. But the list thing really worked because, and it has to be top down. The number one most important word in that entire, in those four core values is service. So having the heart of a servant, knowing that you are the servant of the people, period. And then if you're the servant of the people, you want to build a relationship with them. You want them to trust you. You want to trust them. And so you're honest with them and they're honest with you. Now that's okay. Honesty is a good thing, but you know, you need to have integrity. So you need to have consistent honesty to reach that level that you can call integrity. So now you have this part of a servant and this integrity and the community is tied together with knowing that the heart of a servant means I care more about the other person's needs than mine. I will sacrifice my life for you because you are a creation of God. You are your special person. My job has been given to me by God. I've been blessed to have this opportunity to serve. So if people know that I'm putting their needs before mine. They're going to want to do the same thing for me. And that creates that friendship. The servanthood creates that basis, the foundation for creating that honesty, trust, and integrity, which leads to, even if you've only got two people, you've got a team that based on those two foundational core values, team. If you have a community now, that is tied into law enforcement that way, and you have that team built on those foundational values, now you're leaders. And you can lead other communities to the same results. That's what I did in the sheriff's office. That's what I did in Congress. And you know, people, they can take shots at me. My good friend, Bob Keppel, that we talked about earlier, just passed away last week. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. Yeah, I was able to visit with him before he passed away. He couldn't speak, but he could blink his eyes, yes or no. That guy was dedicated, committed. He was a you know critical guy who expected you to give 110% and do your job. Um, he took a lot of criticism in his career because he was placed in this lead detective role with Ted Bundy, and people saw him taking credit And he wasn't. He was just trying to tell the story. He was the face of the Bundy case. And I'm not the only guy who worked on this case. It took an entire team of people. It took 2,500 volunteers, 75 to 100 detectives, investigators, and patrol officers, and and, uh, the scientists who looked at the evidence and made the comparisons, the medical examiner's office who did all the autopsies and in fact, Bill Hagland, Dr. Hagland, who worked in the medical examiner's office, one of the key players in the medical examiner's office, 
in the Green River case, he just passed away last week also. So two key figures in Washington State who played critical roles passed away. Not many people have heard Bill Hagelin's name, but boy, that guy was, was such a critical piece of this team. And I mean, I could name off an entire list of people that played uh, crucial roles here, but every detective uh, and every volunteer that was involved and engaged in this helped solve this case. And I just happened to be the face of it. Thank you for bringing to our attention the names of those two gentlemen who just recently passed. And I'm very sorry because I know, you know, when you're in the trenches together, like you were in that case, it must really hit extra hard when you lose people like that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I want to ask these two questions together, if you don't mind, but two things. How would you say your life, the person you are now, was impacted by your role in the Green River murder case? And then secondly, what do you want your legacy to be? The impact uh, of this case is it's ongoing. You know, before we started the show, I telling you that I've done, I don't know how many podcasts now talking about this case and take the opportunity to talk about law enforcement in general now as we did, because it's, it's critical we do that. Otherwise, these cases may go unsolved and more people are hurt or killed. As I said, some people are critical. They, they see me as someone trying to seek attention from day one. And I, that's the last thing that I intend to do. It's I want to bring attention to the girls who are working the streets even today that we have a lot of work to do in the area of human trafficking. People need to be aware because these little girls back in the uh, 80s were invisible to the community. They drove to work and back or to the store and back and drove right past these girls every day and every night, hundreds of them standing on the street corner and they were invisible. So we need to make sure that our families are raising children in a caring, loving place. And so that's part of what I I, uh, I try to do in my everyday life is to, is to bring those messages out through documentaries that uh, I'm doing and some talk shows that I'm doing and through the podcasts. Uh, you know, it's uh, when people ask about abortion or, you know, that's as a politician, that's one of the things that you get asked about. And my religion, of course, says that life begins at conception. But beyond that, you stop and think, even if I was not a Christian, the death that I've seen, the little girls' bodies that I've recovered, um, the value of life to me, everyone, the potential that each one of those kids had that were taken from them, uh, to me, connects to that whole political question. So I guess the case for me really has strengthened my opinion around uh, you know, the question of abortion and life is a gift. I agree 100%, Dave, yeah. with that. And your legacy, what would, would you like it to be? I just want to be known as a guy who cared. Well, you certainly did, and you do, Dave. And I really appreciate the time you've spent speaking with me. You've been able to share stories of your life. And I just see the life of a servant and somebody who... Uh, felt very strongly about sticking to it and having hope and trying to encourage others to have hope to solve a case and to really put into effect your protective instincts so that you could 
spare people, hopefully from the type of person that Gary Ridgway was. And I just thank you for that. But I do want to ask you one last question. And that is, you wrote the book that we talked about, Chasing the Devil, My 20 Years Quest to Capture the Green River Killer. Uh, as I mentioned, it, it is a riveting book and it tells a lot about your story and about that case. Is there anything else that you're working on today that you would like to share with our listeners? I just recently retired from my last job when I left Congress. It was two and a half years uh, that I spent working in Central America, working on human trafficking. I left the door open to go back to the University of North Texas and Gordon Thomas Honeywell. When they start to travel again, the effectiveness of my role in working with uh, governments in those countries and police officials was very limited via the internet platforms that we use. So when things open up and we're able to travel again, I hope to get back into helping the people in Central America, which has, as you and your listeners would know, a definite impact on all of us who live in the United States. Yes. Well, Dave, I want to thank you again. Uh, you've been a wonderful guest. I wish you all the best in all you do. We will uh, look forward to hear what else you're going to be doing out there to help the community, because I don't think that you can ever retire from being a servant somehow. <laughs> yeah, I'm having, uh, my wife will tell you, I'm, I'm having some difficulty in winding down. I need a mission. And so, you know, I'm just praying about what that next mission might be. But I'm telling God, you might want to hurry up because I turned 71 the end of August. So, <laughs> well, hey, Dave, you look terrific. I'm 63 and you look a lot younger than I am. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, thanks again, Dave, and I hope you have a wonderful day. Thank you. So, for all of our listeners, keep discovering and telling stories that inspire you and others. Have a great day. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Your History, Your Story. Please subscribe, share, and check out our website at yourhistoryyourstory.com for episode notes and bonus content. We'd love to hear from you if you have any questions, comments, or a story to tell. Be well and God bless.